0: Well, praise the Lord. Seems like we've already had a full time tonight, huh? Are we ready for the word? I'm ready for the word. If you can, if you could open up in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, please. Once again, thank you, worship team. Appreciate you so much. Luke chapter 9. Uh, my text is going to be verse ten through seventeen. For the most part, we will stay there uh, for the evening. Is everybody there? Ready? And the apostles, when they had returned, told him and all they had all that they had done. The apostles are just returning. Uh, Jesus has sent them out. They're 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 out. They're doing miracles. They're healing people. They're excited about what God is doing uh, through them. It's exciting when God moves, right? Amen? Are we excited about the move of God? Then he took them, went aside privately into a deserted place, belonging to the city called Bethsaida. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him, and he received them, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who had need, need of healing. When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may, have, may go into the surrounding towns and countries and lodge and get provisions. For we are in a deserted place here. So the disciples are like, listen, these people are hungry. They need stuff. We don't got nothing. What we do have, we have to hold on to. So get them out of here. But how many people know that Jesus had something else in mind? And Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. Jesus said to them, you do it. You give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. So if you're thinking about 5,000 men... Most of them probably had women and multiple children. You you can probably close to double that number, I would assume, was actually there. Then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. He was very specific, and they did so and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke it and gave them to the disciples and set before the multitudes so that they all ate and were filled and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. The title of my message tonight is you do it. You do it. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy, Lord. We we're just so privileged to sit in your presence under the ministering of your word, Lord. I pray, Lord God, in this time That this feeble man would be able to do some justice by ministering this precious, precious word you've given to us, Lord. I pray that the hearts of every listener would be prepared as soil is prepared for seed. Lord, I pray against any distraction, anything that would come against the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name. So we see a miracle here a miracle of provision, a miracle of compassion from Jesus Christ. This particular miracle is the only one that's actually accounted for in all four Gospels. It's the only one. So when you see it in one, either uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, any one of them, I mean, it is important. If you see it in two of them, it's that much more important. If you see it in three of them, man, it must have really put a... uh, It must have really been impactful to the disciples. But in all four accounts of the gospel message, this story is put in there. Because this was something that probably blew their minds. This was something that they saw that they could never imagine in in, in a million years. Because remember... They had just came back from casting out devils and, 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 and watched Jesus turn water into wine. And they, they, they had seen Jesus heal uh, lepers and blind eyes see. So they were used to God doing some pretty amazing things. But yet this took the top of one of the most amazing things that they'd ever saw. In fact, this was so amazing to them. That they weren't even, they didn't even ask Jesus to do it. They didn't even expect him to do anything. They said, we're going to send these people away because, well, what else are we supposed to do? So it never even crossed their mind that Jesus was going to do this particular miracle. And I want to tell you today, there are things that God wants to do in and for you that you don't even realize He wants to do in your life. God wants to be so good and so big in your life that the goodness of God and the ways that He wants and the things that He wants to give you and do in your heart and in your life have not even been imagined by you yet. In fact, you haven't even asked him for it because you don't even think it's possible. But that's how good your heavenly father is. He's so good that things that you're afraid to ask him for, that you don't even believe him for, he's willing to do for you. Matthew uses words like, Jesus was moved with compassion. Most of the the the, uh, the accounts of this miracle are close to the same but a couple of them have different words and emphasize on different things and Matthew emphasizes on Jesus was moved with compassion. This word used here for compassion is only used in the New Testament to describe Jesus's compassion. It's not the same word that's used in the in in the, in the rest of the gospels to describe other people's compassion. This word was just Used for Jesus' compassion. Because how many people know that God's compassion is deeper than your compassion? God's compassion is even deeper than your mama's compassion for you. Imagine that, because my mama got a lot of love in her heart for me. But that is doesn't even compare to the compassion that Jesus has and had for his people. This was a God kind of love. This was a precious compassion. This was something different than from what mankind had ever experienced before, because this was compassion straight from the, uh, the, the Creator. Mark uh, used words in the description of Jesus, that Jesus used words like, they were sheep without a shepherd. That's how he described the people when when he said, we got to feed them. He, He looked upon them and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. God has a deep love for humanity that is not even realized by man. He desires people not only to be loved and raised up, but he desires that his people would be shepherded. If you've ever read or studied on exactly how a shepherd looks after his sheep, it's amazing that God would use and Jesus would use often uh, a, a shepherd as, as, as an example of what he, he, he is to us and what he wants us to be to each other and the care and the love and the concern. So Jesus said they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he was moved with compassion. You know, the funny thing about, about this portion of Scripture that I found significant is it reminded me just in the next chapter of Luke, in chapter 10, Jesus never prays for the harvest. He never prays for the outcome. He never prays for... for You never see Him really praying or telling, telling them that they need to pray for particular things. Even His miracles and stuff, He basically just did them. He just laid His hands or He just, you know, spoke the Word and it was done. But in, in Luke chapter 10, verse 2... Jesus said that the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers. Because God wants us, he's not worried about the harvest. He does not worry about the need because he knows the need is there. He knows that mankind has, has a great need and is, is hurting and, 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 and needs the love of God and needs, needs the, the compassion of God. But what he tells us to pray for is laborers and shepherds because he knows and it's so important to him on his heart that his people are shepherded. God wants to raise up shepherds in this house. God wants to raise up shepherds in this ministry. God wants to raise up shepherds in this church, not just people that come and sit, but people that do the work of the Lord. And you don't have to have credentials or stand behind a pulpit to do the work of the Lord. And that's really where I'm going to go today. That's really where I'm going to go today, fitting with my title, You Do It, because God has called all of us, He's called all of us to be active in the church. He's called all of us to participate in the, uh, in, in the harvest. He's called all of us to, to participate in the Great Commission. Not just Pastor Gary and Pastor Paul and Pastor Charles. He's called all of us. This miracle is obviously a supernatural miracle. I mean, there's no way you can get around this being supernatural, but as I was studying on this and I was listening to something from R.C. Sproul. For those of you that are uh, theologians or would like to be or do any studying or reading, R.C. Sproul is 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 probably one of uh, our generation's uh, most known uh, theologians. And uh, he was telling a story in this in this thing I was listening to him while he was speaking that in the 19th century there was a school of theology called the religious. Historical school, and it was described as 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 basically religious historical uh, liberalism. I mean, it was it was it was religious, and it tried to explain everything in Scripture in a practical way without any kind of supernatural activity or God intervening in any way, but through the natural. And how many people know that this entire word is supernatural? The fact that we are sitting here today and we have this word is supernatural. There's no way 40 authors over 1,500 years could write something so intertwined and so truthful and so 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 uh, wonderful and so powerful and so alive without the supernatural power of God. But there is a there are there are people that really believe that the stories in the Bible are not supernatural, and they're just stories of nice little uh, nursery rhymes and and little nice things to make you feel good about things. So much so that this is what R.C. Sproul says that he was taught from these particular people, was that Jesus filled the cave with food beforehand and had his disciples hide in the cave. Listen, it gets better. And fill his robe from behind him so that he was able to make food look like it was coming out of, out of his robes. Because you know the robes were baggy. This is, what, this is what this theologian is saying he was taught in college, in school. From these, this particular group of people that were teaching uh, a, a religious history. That, that, that they tried to explain away this. It even gets better. This one is even better. It says that the real miracle was not really a miracle. It was that Jesus... Asked around and found out who brought their own food. And the people shared their food and were generous. And, and that by itself was an ethical miracle. That, 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 the fact that people were sharing their stuff was the miracle. Like, wow, it's wonderful. Look, 5,000 people are sharing their food. And that was the miracle. What I see when I hear stuff like that is the only thing that that manifests is unbelief and no faith. Because you cannot possibly believe in a God that created the universe and the world and not believe that he can't multiply food or he can't. Uh, heal the sick, or he can't, uh, after all, he created it anyway. People are like, well, does God still heal today? I'm like, well, have you ever got a scrape? it says, yeah. Is it still there? No. Well, God still heals. Sometimes he heals quicker. Sometimes he speeds up the process. But guess what? Regardless if you see supernatural healing, God is still healing. Uh, How many of you have had a cold this year? Anyone got a cold? How many of you have COVID right now? No, don't raise your hand. No, 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 no. I'm But God created this immune system. God's a healer. But there are people who do not believe in, in, in the supernatural power of God. But we do here. We do. I do. Salvation is a supernatural thing. Salvation alone, take anything away, is supernatural. That a dead, stony heart that doesn't care about right or wrong, doesn't have a conscience. God reaches down and gives you a heart of flesh. And all of a sudden, if you leave a piece of trash on the floor, you're like convicted. You're like, what? even conviction is supernatural, man. Like, I think I'd be throwing stuff out of the car before Jesus up the road, McDonald's bags. Yeah, they'll pick it up. Who cares? Now it's like, man, I drop a piece of gum wrapper. I'm walking away. I'm like a block away. I'm like, all right, Lord, all right. I'm going to go. Yeah, I got it. All right. Supernatural. Free reasons for miracles. That Jesus did miracles. Number one, he did miracles to auth- authenticate his message, the preaching of the gospel, and to prove who he was. Because he would say things like, you know, me and the Father are one. And they would be like, yeah, yeah. And I will show you because I'm going to do something you can't do. Duh, there's blind eyes. He said, listen, I'm the only one that could do that. And the reason why I can do that is because I'm God. So Jesus did miracles, and he still does miracles to authenticate the preaching of the gospel, to prove the gospel as truth. He stands behind his word to accomplish his word. He also also does miracles to meet the needs of people. God does something just out of sheer compassion sometimes. As we see here, God loves you. God loves you deeply and dearly. God loves humanity, and he does miracles to show that he loves humanity and to meet the needs. And the other reason why he does miracles is to build faith and relationship for future trials. Because although God is supernatural and God loves you, he also promised that you would go through trials. He doesn't put you through trials to punish you. He does allow them to teach you, though. I can assure you that. He doesn't put you through trials because he's a mean God. He does it most of the time as a a disciplining father that loves us and wants to extract bad character qualities out of us and impute his character within us. And he does miracles to build faith and trust and relationship so that we know he's God. And if he could do that, then he can get me through this trial. And he can meet my need in this trial. And we begin to trust him because we know that he does things that no one else can do. I love that Jesus tells them to give them the people something to eat. I love that because he could have just said, don't worry, I got this, and just had like manna rain from heaven or quail. He could have, He could have just done it himself, but instead... He chooses to partner with humanity, and he says, listen, he's like, you give them something to eat. You know, I'm sure they were sitting back waiting for Jesus. Jesus, all right, man, here they are. Feed them. Do your thing. We're just going to sit and watch, or they're probably, I wonder what he's going to do. What do you think he's going to do, hitting each other like this? This should be good. But he tells them, you do it. You give them something. Because although God can do things by himself without us, he chooses to partner with humanity. And he holds us responsible for our end of things at times. Does he need us? He doesn't need us. Has he chosen to partner with us and use us? Yes, he has. He's chosen to use us. Which means we're responsible for our part. The Great Commission, we are, he commanded us to do that. We have to do it. Like it doesn't happen by itself. He said, go make disciples. Well, you can't make disciples just by sitting in your in your in your in your house by yourself with the doors closed like it's March of 2020. No. (laughs) Actually, there's some people still like that. But anyway, they're probably watching on live stream. I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings, man. It's time to come out. (laughs) Praise the Lord. But we, God calls us to partner with him to accomplish what he wants to accomplish on earth. Not because he needs us, we need him. But we have the, the wonderful, wonderful opportunity to be part of what God wants to do here in this ministry, in this community, in this country. Which means we need to stop blaming our lack of pro- productivity, productivity on the will of God. Many of us are waiting for revival. We're waiting for healing. We're waiting to grow. But God is willing and God is able. And God will not, will not do what we can do, but he probably will do what we can't. He won't do what we can do. The title of my message I said was, You Do It. Because I believe God is calling us into a new season and calling the church into a new place and calling Teen Challenge into a new place with a new excitement and a new vigor to know that God has chosen to partner with us, but God expects us to feed the people. God expect, It's almost like Jesus is standing over us, and he's saying, you go do it. That's what I heard when I read this scripture It blew up in my spirit as I was praying for this weekend and to have a word from the Lord. The Lord showed me and illuminated that word to me like he's never illuminated that word before. You go feed them. You, you tell them, you do it. Stop waiting on me. Stop waiting on the right situation, the right circumstance, everything to be lined up. Just go do what I've called you to do. And I'm here to tell you right now that all of you are called to do something. Some of you are waiting for, for some invitation. You're waiting for some position. You're waiting for some title. You're waiting for something. But God is saying to you now, you do it. Get out and do what I've called Called you to do. Step into the calling that I have for you. And sometimes we make this make, make this calling like it's something that's out of our reach. And sometimes it's as little as you know start loving your enemies now stop waiting for things to change or circumstances to be perfect or start standing up for what's right now don't wait for the weather to be right and the wind to be going the right direction now is the time to do the right thing now is the time to stand up for what God has called you to stand up for defend the oppressed and the fatherless now is the time it's not it's not later when you get to a place where well when I have my life all together and I have my house and my kids, and i raise raised my own kids, then I'll start helping someone. Start helping someone right now. If God has called you to be the church, be the church. If God has called you to be a disciple, be a disciple. And in this book that I read, the disciples were doing the same thing the shepherd was doing. You do it. You do it. What are the reasons why many of us don't see great things happening and we're not accomplishing all that we believe that God should be doing. And a lot of it is linked to us waiting on somebody else to do it. Some of it's linked to our our low view of God and what He's willing to do. Some of it's linked to our low view of our own self. Some of it's linked to laziness and slothfulness And we don't want to get out and and put ourselves out or step out of our comfort zone to do something different or new. Some of it's because we've been distracted by life and the things of this world. It's so funny. God can bless your life and give you the things you're praying for. And as soon as you get them, you walk away from him. You stop doing what God has called you to do. And you make the very blessing that he gave you an idol. We see it all the time. Oh, give me my life back. Give me a wife and all these things. And, you know, you get a job and you get a girl. And then all of a sudden, God is put on the back burner. Everything the Lord blessed you with. Everything the Lord has blessed you with. But I am determined, and I hope you are too, that whatever God has given me, whatever possibility God has given me, whatever opportunity he has given me, I'm going to give it back to him and say, Lord, for your glory and for your name's sake, Lord, if you lift me up, I'm going to pull some people up with me, Lord God. You do it. You do it. You know, something Pastor uh, Jesse said last week, and I thought it was so powerful. He said, the burden is proof of the calling. The burden is proof of the calling. Your opposition is proof of your, your need for God. Your opposition is your proof of your need for God. Both of them are supernatural. Listen to that. Both of them are super. Your burden is proof of your calling, supernatural. Your opposition is is proof that you need God's help, and that's supernatural. Like I said earlier, sometimes the Lord will allow trials. God wants you to develop a trust relationship with him. He wants you to know that he cares for you. He wants to know that he's with you. He wants you to know that he wants to partner with you. He wants you to know that he's going to be with you in hard times. Because hard times are going to come. I don't care how much you pray, how good of a Christian you are, how much money you put in the tithe bucket. I don't care how nice you smell so good. Your hair is nice. You haven't cursed in 64 years. You are going to face Hard times. Yeah, yeah. It's always the right time to do the right thing. Now I'm going to start. It's 9 o'clock, okay. Give me 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Per point. I have three points, so. <laughs> I'll be quick. I'll be quick. You do it. The first, My first point is start where you're at. Start where you're at. Arthur Ashe, uh, most of us know the name from doing the U.S. Open, the stadium at, uh, there where they play tennis and the championships. It's Arthur Ashe Stadium, and it's actually a stadium that was named after uh, <clears throat> a black tennis player, African-American. He was the first black tennis player to w- win Wimbledon. He won three major championships He played during the 70s, retired like 1980, and they named a stadium after him. And he said this Start where you are, use what you have, and do what you can. And he was just a tennis player. He he went to the top of his game, he was a champion. But his words, his greatest words, in the quote, the greatest quote that he ever had, the only one that I could find by him, so I assume it was his greatest quote, was Start where you are, use what you have. And do what you can, Francis of Assisi. Um, I always laugh when I say I'm sorry, Francis of Assisi. <laughs> uh, his poor dad, right? I mean, uh, but anyway, he was uh, he was a Catholic preacher in the 1200s. I don't know the exact year. Forgive me, I didn't write it down when I was studying it. But a quote that he said was: "Start by doing what's necessary, then do what's possible." and suddenly you'll be doing the impossible. Start by doing what's necessary, then do what's possible, and suddenly you'll be doing what's impossible. See, God will never ask you for something you don't have, except, this is the only thing God will ever ask you that you don't have, is a sinless life, (laughs) because he gave that for you. (laughs) Other than that, he will never ask you for a thing that that he hasn't given you. And the funny thing about... Everything that you have that we hold on to so dear, he gave us anyway. You know, it's like when we're afraid, you know, come on, you know, when you got that last five dollars in your pocket, come on. I guess you guys are more holy than me. Than me. But, you know, you got that last five dollar bill and you're like planning on picking up a cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee on the way home. And, man, you feel like you need to put it in the offering. And it's like, man. And it's like, man, I got to hold on to my last five. Well, guess what, dingbat? I'm talking to myself. I talk to myself that way. I'm talking to myself. God gave you that five hours in the first place. Just like this fish. You know, what are we going to do? God orchestrated the boy to be there with the fish in the first place. Imagine he was like, I can't give away the fish. I can't. I can't. You know, I got to hold on to this thing. And he could have. I guess he could have fought. I mean, I, I don't know much of a chance he would have had against 12 roughneck disciples but but anyway I mean they were his fish but think about just think about the sovereignty of God that God planned before the the earth was even spoken to creation now I can get you scriptures scriptures to back what I'm up saying but I'm telling you that this is the truth that before God spoke the earth into creation he purposed a little boy whose dad went fishing on a Saturday afternoon, well, it wasn't a Saturday because that would have been a Sabbath. on a Thursday afternoon, so that he could catch a fish to give to his son to go and have a lunch wherever he went. God purposed that. So the next time you're worried about God taking care of you, or God fulfilling a need, or God being uh, really attentive to what's going on in your life, remember this, that before the creation of the world, before he said, let there be light, he knew in his mind that he was going to have a man fishing to catch a fish, to give his son, to end up in the desert, so the disciples would have to handed over to Jesus so that he would multiply the fish that's how big your God is that's how concerned he is about you that's how much you can trust him that's how, how his wisdom is manifold he's light years ahead of where you are right now in fact some of you right now are sitting in your seat and you're full of anxiety about something that God already worked out before your parents were even born <laughs> oh hallelujah hallelujah man that's good preaching I'm excited myself I'm ready to run around this place. Start where you're at. Job chapter 8 verse 7. Your beginnings will seem humble. So prosperous will your future be. Start where you're at. Wherever God has you. Don't overcomplicate everything. Stop worrying about something being exactly perfect for you to do what God has called you to do. Just... You do it. You do it. You do it. For those of you in the program, God has called you right now to be in the program. So don't get it. Don't come. Pastor Paul spoke a word and told me to go do it. So I'm leaving the program. I know. What God's probably telling you to do is to submit. And to die to yourself we're going to get to that now. Point number 2. Everything you have ever prayed for is on the other side of radical obedience. Everything you've ever prayed for is on the other side of radical. Jesus in verse 15 told them to sit to them to sit in groups of 50. Now I mentioned it earlier before. This was very he was very specific. Have you ever tried to get that many hungry people to do anything? Even 50. And now we're talking about 10,000 in groups of 50. Listen, You know, we got 15 guys in the program, sometimes rallying everyone just to get to the church in one van or whatever have you is enough. Could you imagine Jesus giving them this instruction? I want you to put them in groups of 50. He didn't say about 50. He said groups of 50. Groups of 50 and tell them to sit down. That's some radical obedience right there. And God spoke it. And he expected it to happen. So if God has spoke something to you, whether it be through the word, in your spirit, about being obedient and submitted, he will give you the ability to do what he's asked you to do. Because there's no way without God intervening that you can get 55, 10,000 people with children, too. I have two children. I can't keep them in, our, in one room. For more than three seconds. But God said, put him in groups of 50 and tell them to sit down. And they obeyed. Because God spoke it. Everything you've ever prayed for is on the other side of radical obedience. Obedience is becoming more difficult of a more difficult concept in our culture. Any form of submission is almost spoken about like it's abuse in our days. God leads and protects us under the umbrella of obedience. And under that umbrella, God will not withhold any good thing from you. The greatest lesson that you will ever learn is submission and obedience, regardless if you understand. If you can learn to just submit and obey, God can do anything through your life. Because here's what it takes Obedience. Here's what why obedience is hard. Number one, it's obviously hard because it goes against the grain of your flesh, because your flesh wants to do its own thing, it wants to exalt self, it wants to be number one. Nobody can tell me anything. I'm the most important thing in my world. So that's the first reason. But the second reason why obedience is difficult is because a lack of faith or trust in God. Because we don't believe that if we don't manipulate situations the way we feel it should go, we will not have the, the result we want. So we believe, you're telling me if, if I submit and I submit to the word and I give away what I have, you will give me more. Nah, I'm not buying that. I can't buy that. So you're saying to me, the Bible said what I'm saying the Bible says, I'm just saying it. So you're saying... That in order to find my life, I have to lose my life. Nah, nah, nah. You know, I mean, I'll lose maybe my toe, but not my whole life. You know, you know. uh, And it's because of a lack of trust and faith in God. Because you believe that if you don't handle it the way you think you should handle it, that it's not going to be a good result for you. But I could promise you one thing. There is nothing, nothing that I've asked the Father for, according to his will. I haven't asked him for a Mercedes yet, but we're getting there. That he hasn't given. All under the umbrella of submission to obedience. And, guys, submission to the word, but this also means submission to man. The Bible's clear about that. That God establishes governing authorities. Come on, you guys could probably. Romans chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 13, Titus chapter 3. God establishes order and structure and rules. Not just in church, but church especially, in our government, in our world. And we have to trust God enough to submit ourselves to all of it. Listen, I'd rather hold on to my taxes, yeah, the money uh, for my taxes. I think I could do a lot better things with it with, uh, than the government can. Personally, I'm probably right. But at the end of the day, I have to submit and say, Lord, I have to trust that I'm going to give the money because it's the right thing to do. It's, it's, it's what the Bible declares that we do, that we obey our, 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 our governing authorities. And I, I have to trust you that whatever I think I'm losing, I'm, you you didn't care me on the back end. I mean, there's 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 things that should, my car should have broke down seven times, but because the hand of the Lord is on my life, because God is protected. and and you're saying Paul, that's a little weird. The Bible declares that He will protect you from the devourer, doesn't He, Pastor Charles? The, that that He will actually keep sickness from your house. That's what He will do. But you have to step under the authority of obedience, the umbrella of obedience. It shows developed trust in God. That, Lord, I don't have to manipulate and figure everything out. You already got that figured out. I just got to get under this umbrella of obedience, and you'll take care of the rain for me. You'll take care of the rain. Everything you've ever asked for is on the other side of radical obedience. Jesus said this in John fourteen twenty three. Anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Even Jesus said this. Without obey he says if you if you love me don't you know there's a lot of people with sloppy grace oh god understands this i love him but Jesus himself now Jesus said if you obey my teachings then you love me. You know? It's like ladies, you know, if if, if you know back Maybe before Christ or whatever have you, if you had this boyfriend who wanted to have another girlfriend, you'd be like, you know, that, that's a deal changer. If you love me, I'm it, man. I'm it. Don't tell me you love me, but you got someone on the side. Right? Right? Well, Jesus is like, don't tell me you love me, but you won't obey me and listen to me. But if you do obey me, I and the Father will come live in you and with you. Man. Whew, that's good. That's good. So all I got to do is obey? That's it. Deuteronomy 5.33 says, walk in obedience to all that the Lord God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you possess. Spiritual maturity isn't reached with the passing of years but by obedience to the will of God. That's Oswald Chambers and I love that quote. Because I've met a lot of old people that were very spiritually immature. And I've met some young people that were very spiritually mature. Because it's not reached with the passing of years, but by obedience to the will of God. You want to be a mature Christian? You want to be usable to God? You want to have a spiritual authority? Learn to be obedient. Learn to be obedient. My third point, and I'm closing. The band can come up. Broken things have a way of blessing far more people than whole things. Broken things have a way of blessing far more people than broken things. Verse 16 says, then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and gave them to his disciples. Very rarely is something blessed until it's broken. Very rarely is something blessed until it's broken. Being broken seems to be far more productive than being complete. It's easy to feel like you can't, can't do it, shouldn't do it, and won't do it when you're broken. But I promise, if you press through this, you will soon find out that brokenness is one of the greatest gifts God will ever give you. Brokenness is one of the greatest gods. Guys, many of you are in a place where you're broken. And you feel like, what have I done to my life? What decisions have I made? Where, where am I at? As hard as that is, that is a beautiful, beautiful place to be. So much so that I've prayed for the I've prayed, Lord, keep me broken without the hard circumstances, if that's possible. Because being broken before the Lord is where the Lord fills your heart with Himself. He ministers to you. He speaks to you. It's where your heart is pliable. It's where your heart is humbled. It's where your heart is at a place where, Lord, I just need to hear from you. That's where God wants us to be. And we can learn to live in that place without the situations. Or we can have situation after situation bring us to that place. God will either get you by affection or affliction, and the choice is yours. He will get your attention by affection or affliction. He will call you unto himself. He will beckon you to himself. He will call you into his chambers, into his presence. And you can come gladly and wholeheartedly. Or you can let the troubles of life, the heartbreaks of life, bring you to your knees. But if he's called you, he's not going to stop calling you. And if he loves you, he's not going to stop loving you. And if you're his son or his daughter, he's going to continue to contend for your heart and your affection. You cannot run from him. Broken things have a way of blessing far more people than whole things. Sometimes you'll have to learn how to do it alone, but do it anyway. You'll have to learn how to do it broke, but do it anyway. You'll have to learn how to do it tired, but do it anyway. You're going to have to learn how to do it scared, but do it anyway. God is calling you into the next level. He's calling you, and He's saying, I could do this without you, but I'm choosing to partner with you. I'm choosing to use you. I'm choosing to call you into a relationship with me. Don't stand on the outskirts watching and waiting. Don't stand waiting for a particular time or a year or for your life to be right where it's at to say, Lord, here I am. And I close with this the most powerful thing that the Lord showed me in this portion of Scripture this time that I've never seen before, nor have I heard it preached, what I'm going to share with you. And I'm not saying it hasn't been preached, and you might all say, oh, I already knew that, Pastor Paul. But for me, this was new. You know, there was an innocent boy. He was a boy. He wasn't a man. He was a boy. He was under the, under the age of accountability, I'm sure. And He came. And he had these fish and these loaves, bread. And it was asked of him that he give up what he has. And Scripture doesn't really say what his attitude was, but I'm going to assume that he was happy and glad to do it. And he gave up what he had. And Jesus took this bread and the fish and he broke it. And he blessed it. And because it was broken and it was blessed, it multiplied. And he was able to take care of thousands of people. And what the Lord showed me reading the scripture this week is that it was that this was a Christoph Christoph Christoph. christophany because Jesus, who was innocent, his body was taken, and he gladly gave it over, and it was broken, and it was able to, to take care of sin from generation to generation. This boy's food, would have continued to multiply until everyone was fed, it says they took 12 baskets away. It means that there was more than enough. And it would have kept on breaking and multiplying if need be. Like the body of Jesus, it was broken and his blood was poured out for each one of you. And that for every sin, whether it's one or it's a million, his body and his blood is multiplied for you from generation to generation. And no matter how far you've gone, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're going to do in the future, There's forgiveness and mercy for those that will partake. (laughs) An innocent man, Jesus, fully man and fully God, gave what he had so that it would be broken and to feed you.